I think you're singing louder, so thank you. It's wonderful. Uh, thank you to the musicians and Josh, you guys that lead us so faithfully. It's such a gift to us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 say that we sing, uh, Ephesians 5, sorry, that we sing not only to God, but we sing to one another. So it is enjoyable to hear um, you sing Sunday after Sunday. We'll turn to 1 Samuel 23. I think the 8 to 10-year-olds are already gone. All right, if there are any straggling 8 to 10-year-olds that want to go to the class, uh, now's your time. 1 Samuel 23 is the passage before us. Welcome to those of you visiting. We're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Samuel. It's our normal pattern to go verse by verse through books of the Bible to get the context, understand all that God has for us. Uh, the people here in this church do not care about my opinion about anything. They care about what the Word of God says, and so we open it, go through it, and that's what forms our opinions. And so it's a joy to march through the Scriptures together. Here, 1 Samuel chapter 23, please listen as I read. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hekelah? 
which is south of Jeshimon. Now come down, O king, according to all that all your hearts desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure, know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went as if ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And David said to his men, and David, I'm sorry, and Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David <coughs> in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned <coughs> from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore the place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. I've entitled this message, How God Guides. God guides David through this chase in three different ways, really, and that's what we'll see this morning, three different ways. It reminds me of the importance of guidance. Uh, we, you know, have guidance counselors that guide us through college. We have tour guides that, that lead us through different cities and, and sites. I had a friend uh, named Tommy, who was a tour guide, and he would actually be sent to different cities in the U.S., and he would be there for uh, four or five days, and he would search and explore the city, learn all they could about the city, uh, read up on it, and then four or five days later, a group would come in, a busload of tourists, and it would be his job to go and guide them through to see different uh, landmarks in the city. He, one of the cities that he would often give tours to, uh, tours in was Boston. So early on, as he was getting to learn the city of Boston, he would guide them through and, you know, show them where the Boston Massacre took place and, and things. And, and one time he was leading them to the, to the new state house, and someone asked him, what's on top of the Golden Dome there at the Massachusetts State House? What, what, what is that on the Golden Dome? It looks like a, a, a nut or some, some object. And he said, that's an acorn. It, it, an acorn leads to producing an oak, and an oak is strong. So the colony of Massachusetts was strong. Now the state is strong. And that sounds all well and good, but it's not an acorn up there. Uh, it's a pine cone. A pine cone giving a nod to the lumber industry in the Massachusetts colony. Uh, so Tommy kind of hangs his head in shame as to that low moment because, uh, you know, one of the tourists kind of looked through a book and said, actually, it, it's a pine cone. So there goes Tommy's credibility. Um, but I thought of that when I thought of this passage. Uh, guidance is important. Good guidance is important. Truthful guidance is important through life. If you go and seek counsel on an issue, if you hire a professional, you want them to give you good guidance. Well, here, David is on the run, fleeing from Saul. David, humanly speaking, should not survive. Saul has the army of Israel behind him. 
He has messengers all throughout Israel, as we see in this passage. David and 600 now hiding men should not be able to survive. But for some reason, David survives. And this all points to God's faithfulness to His people, God's protective care over His people. And so again, as I said before, we're going to see three ways that God guides His people in this passage. Again, David's on the run. He's on the run for his life. Saul's after him. And we learn first that God rescues or saves or guides his people by his word. This is verses 1 through 14. God guides his people by his word. And you're going to see this as we go through it. You're going to see four different times that it says the Lord said or the Lord answered. There's a theme here in these 14 verses. The Lord is speaking to David. Verse 1, now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. David, as you know, is in Judah. God told him to go to Judah. Judah is perhaps the most dangerous place for David to be, but he's there because God guided him there. That's what God often does with his loved ones. He guides them into difficult situations and then he provides for them. So David guides or God guides David to uh, Judah, the territory of Judah, and there's this city there named Calah. And Calah is a walled city, as Saul will later say, it has gates. And Calah was really helpless against the Philistines. The Philistine raiders would come in after the citizens of Calah would, would gather their crops and have them at the threshing floor. And the Philistines would simply overpower the people of Calah, take all of the food or the grain, take all that they needed from the threshing floor and run away, and the citizens of Calah could do nothing about it. And so David gets word that the Philistines are fighting against Calah and robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. As I've told you before, kings during this time, their primary job was to defend their citizens against the enemies all around them. And, and in, this, in this area at this time, there were Philistines, there were Ammonites, there were Moabites. Uh, this, this, the, the place, this, this small piece of land, as it were, in the Middle East is surrounded by all these different nations, and they're always going to war against one another every single year, and even more frequently than that. So one of the things a king would do is defend his people. So David was a warrior, a mighty man, a military leader. And so David, as he's on the run, is kind of interrupted, and there's a city to save and rescue. So he asks the Lord if he should save the people of Calah. And the Lord says, go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. Verse 3, but David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? So we're running from Saul, and we know who this group is. This is a motley crew, right? This is not the finest of the finest. We learned that earlier on in 1 Samuel. These are the people that owe the government money. These are people who have committed crimes, and they all gather around David as their military leader. There were 400 of them two chapters ago. Here in this chapter, their ranks have, have exploded to 600. So now there are 600 people saying, we don't want to go fight the Philistines. We're, we're running for our own lives. We're afraid. So David, verse 4, inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him. Remember earlier in 1 Samuel when Saul inquired of the Lord and the Lord did not answer? Okay, this is the one whose favor the Lord is upon. So David inquires of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines. 
and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of, the inhabitants of Calah. So David asked twice. The Lord told him he would be victorious twice. And then David was, in fact, victorious. God kept his word. God was true to his word, true to his promise. Verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. So the linen ephod, I've, I've told you about this before, it's what priests would wear. In it were the Urim and the Thummim. This is like casting of lots. They would ask God a question, should I go to Calah and stop the Philistines? And they would take out from the little pouch one of the lots, and it would be an affirmative, a yes, or it would be a no. And that's how they would receive God's guidance in that day. A little different than how we get it today, okay? But that's how they would get it then, and the priests would be the one to bring the linen ephod. So the son of the priest who's just been murdered here, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David. He's on the run as well, and he brings David the linen ephod. So that begs the question, how did David speak to God in the verses that we already just read, 23, 1 to 5? Don't know. Text doesn't say, okay? But here, it's going to be through the Urim and Thummim, through the linen ephod, okay? And I'll just remind you, just a side note, there's a reason we don't know. God determined that we wouldn't know. So don't major on the white spaces in your Bible, major on the black words in your Bible, okay? God revealed this to us. It's not a, it's not a, it's a mystery as to how he revealed himself to David before that. We don't know, but that's not what God's intending us to understand right now. But now we know that he does understand through the use of the linen ephod. Verse 7, now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. Saul says, God has given him into my head. Saul thinks God is on his side. We, the reader, know that God's not on Saul's side, but Saul still thinks he's on his side. God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. David just rescued Calah. He's in the city, and what an idiot. He's in the city that has gates and bars. He's surrounded. He's mine. That, that, that's what most people would have thought. David's in trouble. He's walled in. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? So that's question one. Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? That's question two. O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. That's the affirmative. Yes, Saul will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, Affirmative. They will surrender you. Now just think of the, the, the betrayal from the citizens of Calah. David and his 600 men rescued them from the Philistines. They, they even grabbed some of the Philistine um, animals, the livestock. They rescued Calah and now the people of Calah surrender David into Saul's hands. Don't be like the people of Calah, okay? So David knows this is going to happen. 
Lord said, they will surrender you. Verse 13, then David and his men who were about 600 arose and departed from Keilah and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds, in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. God is clearly not on Saul's side. God is clearly on David's side. And how does God guide David? By his word. His word through the Urim and Thummim. But this is God speaking, as it were, to David, guiding him. God's word guides. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's guidance language. The Bible is guiding the people of God. The Word of God guides the people of God. New Covenant language, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Why? Why do we need the Word of God? Why do we need teaching that instructs us about what the Word of God means and how we should respond to it? Why do we need that? For reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Word of God is what equips the man of God or the woman of God or the child of God for every good work. It does it by reproving us, correcting us, training us, but we need the Word of God to guide us. And when it guides us, it equips us for every good work. It equips us to to live like Jesus. To live righteously, the Word of God does that. And that can be so cliche today among Christians, right? I know that. What's new? But, but maybe today would just be a reminder to you that you need to know this Word more than you need anything else, more than you need a life coach, a personal trainer, a therapist, more than you need any of those things, common grace things. You need to understand the Word of God. As you know what the Bible means, as you understand what it says, you will be equipped to make better decisions, to love people better, to spiritually thrive and worship, knowing the Word of God is where it starts. We could do a a kind of a study on the Word of God in the New Testament, how the Word of God guides God's people. We don't have time for that. This is one way that God guides His people in this passage, but I want you to just consider a couple passages. I'm not going to go flip through them, but I want you to consider that Jesus is called the Word of God. Jesus says in Matthew 28 that He wants us to go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach these new disciples all that He, Jesus, has commanded them. So Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus teaches. Jesus speaks. And so you might think, okay, the words of Jesus are given in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So then why do we have Acts through Revelation? That can't be the Word of God. I'm setting you up, by the way, okay? No, Acts through Revelation are the Word of God. Jesus said in John 14 that He was going to send the Holy Spirit into the apostles, and the apostles would have come to their mind the things that Jesus had taught, and they would note them. They would write that down. That's why Second Peter 1 says that all Scripture is inspired. So as the apostles write, they're inspired of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 3 is Peter referring to Paul's writings as, get this, Scripture. Luke's writings 
called Scripture in the New Testament. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, speaking to his churches. So the New Testament that you have in these leather covers, the New Testament is the Word of God, the Scriptures, just like the Old Testament is the Word of God, the Scriptures. And this is how God guides his people, by teaching, by giving them a word. In fact, in 2 Peter 1, Peter refers to the vision that he saw on the mountain, the, the, the glory of God, the transfiguration. He refers to this vision and the power, and he says it's, it's, that, that's not enough for you. You can't reduplicate that. I, I can't bring you to what I saw. You have, we have a, a, a word more sure. It's written down. You can count on this word because you can all read this and understand it. You can't see what I saw, Peter says. You have a word made more sure. This lasts and God guides his people by his word. I used to have a pastor friend uh, named Rick, and he would often say in his sermons, he would say, this is the read your Bible more sermon. And he'd say that almost every Sunday. Okay. Well, in honor of Rick, okay, Rick, in honor of Rick, this is the read your Bible more sermon. God guides his people by his word. So I'm encouraging you, read the word, study the word, listen to the word. Hear the word taught to you. Respond to the word. Obey the word. This is how God guides his people. Drink the word in. I, I was thinking this week, this may be what I want for this church more than anything. What do you want for the people that you love? I think it would be that you would sit regularly and study and know and see things in the word of God because that would change your life. Some of you do that, most of you do that, but all the more that you would jump in, pick a book, and go after it. Read it over and over and over and over again. Be an expert in that book. See the character of God in that book. See what he's saying. See the connections God is making. See the language he uses. Know the Word of God. It will change your life. Know the Word. The Word brings life. So God guides by His Word. There's a second way he guides in this passage, how he guides David. He guides by his counsel. He guides by counsel. And this is counsel that he gives through another person. So God guides by counsel. And this is Jonathan coming to David. This little, this little interlude in our chapter, these four verses, 15 through 18, is a counselor, a messenger, a, a friend of David's coming to him and strengthening his hand in God. Verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, evidently given information as to where David is, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Now, last time we left Jonathan, Jonathan and David were actually departing and they didn't know if they'd see each other again. Jonathan hears about where David is, goes to him for the purpose of strengthening his hand in God. And Jonathan doesn't go to bring him to a different location. I'm, I'm going I'm to move you from here to there. Jonathan's concern is that David is trusting in God. In fact, at the end of this, in verse 18, it says the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Jonathan did not go to say, David, you can't stay here. You've got to go over here. Priority number one for Jonathan was that David would trust in God. Jonathan came, and, and if you will, he preached David a message about God's promise, and then he said, okay, my work here is done. You stay here. I'm going back. 
Jonathan was purposeful to remind David to trust in God. He strengthened his hand in God. That's a great phrase, isn't it? That's a friend you want, a friend who strengthens your hand in God. So let me just ask you, who are your friends? Who are your friends? Are they friends who strengthen your hand in God, or are they friends that you can continue to be fearful with and who try to get you to be fearful of everything going on around you all over the place? Or are they friends who strengthen your hand in God? This is what a true godly friend does. They strengthen your hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear. Jonathan's saying to David, I I love this because just last week we ended our passage with David telling Abiathar not to be afraid, right? Stay with me. Do not be afraid. This is 22, 23, chapter 22, verse 23. Stay with me. Do not be afraid because he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. So David has told someone else, hey, I know Saul's after us. Don't be afraid. Listen, sometimes the spiritual giant, in this case David, also needs strengthening. So David in one chapter is saying, stay with me, don't be afraid. And in this chapter, someone's telling David, hey, you don't be afraid. Strengthening his hand in God. Said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. How does Jonathan know that his dad won't find David? Jonathan seems pretty confident. Well, it's because God, Jonathan knows, has made a promise to David that David will be king. So it's kind of like when Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, he was going to do it. How could a guy sacrifice his own son? Well, we're told later in Scripture that he knew that if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise Isaac up again because God made a promise. You're going to have a child, and through him is going to be a line of children. You're going to have a family. So God knew The reason, or Abraham knew, the reason he could obey God was because God had promised him something, and he was taking those promises to the bank. Here, Jonathan knew God had promised David he was going to be king, so that's why Jonathan can remind David, don't be afraid, you're going to be king. My dad is not going to get you. He's not going to harm you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Remember the the covenant? Jonathan's going to be standing by the side of David. Saul, my father, also knows this, and the two of them made a covenant, so they re- that, that's covenant renewal. They made a covenant again before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. But I want you to see here that God guides through counsel. God guides through other people. Sometimes in, in our day, you know, people will say, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting for God to guide me, and it's almost like they're waiting for something magical to appear like a map to fall down and like a pin stuck in it. Tuscaloosa. See, I'm supposed to move to Tuscaloosa. We, we want guidance that way. In the meantime, they've got lots of faithful friends who are giving them wisdom and counsel from the Word of God. Yeah, I know, but I'm waiting for God to guide me. God often guides through other people speaking the Word to you. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, said that there's wisdom and safety in a multitude of counselors. He also prizes counsel when he says, oil and perfume, this is Proverbs 27, 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So the Bible speaks to receiving wisdom from other people. 
Colossians 3 says that we're to admonish one another with all wisdom even. Sometimes we warn one another with wisdom. We, like the Roman church, want to be those that can speak the Word of God to one another. This is how God guides people. It's not just when you read His Word, it's when other people who know His Word and have wisdom share it with you. This is one way God protects His people. But I, want you, I don't want you to miss the fact that all of God's people need guidance. No one's above this. David was not above having guidance for another person. I told you, David in one chapter, chapter 22, is telling someone not to be afraid. In another chapter, he's got, a, he's got a friend come to him saying, David, now you don't be afraid. Even the strongest of people, most mature Christians, need guidance, need help. David was strong, David was godly, and David needed a friend to speak the Word of God to him. God designed us this way. God has designed us to be people that need help from others. Some of you men, that's really hard. Oh, I'm not going to call a plumber. I'll fix it. And your wife's in the background going, no, no, just, just call the plumber or whatever it may be. Fine, whatever. You know, try your hand at it, all right? But when it comes to your spiritual life, please don't resist help from other people. That is literally going against the will of God. God has designed people to be helped by shepherds, Hebrews 13, 1 Thessalonians 5. God has designed Christians to be helped by one another, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. God designs us to be helped by other people, leaders, other followers of Christ. Please don't disregard that. Okay, see the humility of David in being led and counseled and shepherded by his friend Jonathan who spoke the word to him. God has made us to receive benefit from other people and their words, their help. I think of, some of you may have seen this, this video footage or maybe you watched it when it happened. 1992 Barcelona Olympics, there was this British 400-meter runner that, that had won a number of championships, and, and he was one of the favorites in the 400-meter dash, and uh, he entered the race. This is on TV, again, Olympics. Uh, Derek Redmond was his name. Derek Redmond is going around the track, and, and he pulled up. He pulled a hamstring or some injury, and, and he, couldn't, he couldn't go on, just stop, which sometimes happens with world-class athletes, just, just stopped. I mean, all his hopes and dreams, and now he's on the track, can't move forward. Um, he couldn't finish the race. He wanted to. He didn't want anyone to, you know, tell him, you're done, you're disqualified. He still wanted to cross the finish line, way after everyone else, and he couldn't. So there, there's footage of it where his dad leaves the stands. His dad kind of goes through security, runs out on the track, and it's his father in the Olympics helping his son to the finish line way after everyone. I mean, people today don't even remember who won, but they remember Derek Redmond and his father helping him along to the finish line. It, it's a wonderful video. And I was thinking, that reminds me of David and Jonathan here. Jonathan just helping his friend along. And this is our life. We're all going to cross the finish line, go to heaven, and it'll be because God sent people in our lives to help us along, to help us on our way to heaven. We're going to, we're, we're all crawling around the track, aren't we? We're, we're injured. There are people going past us. 
But we're going to make it. And God's going to use one another, other people, to help get us there. This is how God works. He works this way in the Old Testament. He works this way in the New Testament. So I'd encourage you, have a friend that strengthens your soul in God. And please, go away from this passage. Maybe think about it later today or tomorrow. Think, who are the people that strengthen me in God? And I want to spend more time with them. I want to talk to them more. I need this help. If David needed it, I need it. But also, be a friend that strengthens people in God's Word. You don't need to be the friend that worries with another friend. We've got enough of that. Be the friend that strengthens someone's hand in the Word of God. Point them to promises for followers of God. Pray with them. Help them. Encourage them. So God guides us by His Word. God guides us by counsel. And finally, in verses 19. Now, let me, let me give you a definition of providence. Um, and it really actually comes from our catechism question earlier in the service, right? I mean, just in God's providence, He providentially brought us to Lord's Day 10 because it is the 10th Lord's Day of the year, and we're in a passage that talks about God's providence, so here we go. I'm going to read what we read earlier. Again, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with His hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and pro- poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. The providence of God is the doctrine that says God rules everything, every cell, every atom. He rules and uses for His purposes Oftentimes, the providence of God is is compared to God's miraculous works, God's miraculous power. (laughs) When God does miracles, He interrupts or or violates, if you will, the rules um, of nature that He has put in place. So, seas don't have walls where you can kind of walk through a parted sea. But God can part the Red Sea and send His people through. That's a miracle. Providence is when, without violating his own laws of nature, he just does things in a regular, ordinary manner, right? You, you eat the right foods, and you tend to be healthy. It is just providence, providence of God. You save some money, you're going to have some money later on. That's just God working through providence, ordinary ways. God's providence is fascinating because the Bible teaches that God's providence always leads his followers, even though they go through difficulty, he leads them through difficulty for greater purposes, and it is good for them. So whether it's, as the catechism says, whether it's in prosperity or poverty, God rightly leads his people. He's in control. And you see this here in the rest of the chapter, 19 to 29. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hekelah, which is south of Jeshimon? So David has left the, the previous place. He's gone about five miles south. And now these Ziphites, these crazy Ziphites, they go to Gath themselves. They don't send a messenger. They go themselves and tell Saul, listen, we know where David is. And they even name the hill that he's on. They don't say he's somewhere in Prescott. 
They say he's at the top of Thumb Butte. They know exactly where he is, and they want Saul to go and get him. Remember, the nation is largely loyal to Saul at this point. He's the king. So they go and tell Saul where he is. Verse 20 I mean, they evidently really want Saul to win. Verse 20, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Saul, may you have all that your heart wants, and we will put David into your hand. We'll grab him, give him to you. We're, we're letting you know where he is. Okay, sounds like David may lose here. Verse 21, and Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Just isn't that sickening? I mean, Saul, again, he thinks that he can dole out blessing on behalf of the Lord. The Lord's not even talking to Saul. He's talking to his enemy, David. But Saul, may you be blessed by the Lord. Reminds me of a false teacher pronouncing blessing on the people of God. You have no right. God is not on your side. What are you doing? But here we go. Here's Saul. Verse 22, go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is. I want, I want more confirmation. And who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among the, all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. So some time evidently passes. It says now in the next paragraph, now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. So maybe they got word again or who knows, but Saul's now coming after him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain. So now they're on the same mountain, Okay. It's how close Saul is. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. I mean, if this was a movie, the, the, the bass drum would be picking up steam. The, the, the score would be more frantic and more frantic, more frantic. It's about to happen. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, hurry and come. For the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Get this. They're on the same mountain. You, you can almost picture the, the crest of the mountain here, David over here, Saul kind of coming up the mountain or coming around the mountain, and all of a sudden he's right there, and all of a sudden a messenger. Saul, we got to go this way. The Philistines are coming. Saul's almost got David, and a messenger comes. I wonder who's behind this. God. Remember what we read earlier on in verse 14? And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. God's behind this. God not only sent a messenger, he sent the Philistines to another city. God used evil for his own purposes. This messenger comes, interrupts Saul. Verse 28, so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the rock of escape or the rock of departing, the rock of division. There's a, there's, was literally a rock that people started naming. This is the place where Saul split off from David. It's commemorated. And David 
went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. This is so good. The, the geography of Israel. David's got Philistines. Okay, again, I'm looking at the map over here, okay? Mediterranean Sea, Philistines over here, Judah here. Over here, you've got Dead Sea. On this side of the Dead Sea, you've got uh, the Moabites. But on the Dead Sea, it's just, it's just this harsh environment near the Dead Sea. Really harsh. David's been in the wilderness. He's been in caves. Now he's brought to the strongholds of En Gedi, the, these rock-like mountains right along the Dead Sea. And in this area, there's actually an oasis, an oasis where, where trees grow and thrive. There's actually a, a spring of fresh water that flows at En Gedi. God sees to it that David's almost going to be captured by Saul. God interrupts it in his providence and brings David to an oasis environment. I mean, if that's not a parable for our life, I don't know what is. Okay? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I mean, that seems horrible and horrendous. Satan's right there knocking at the door. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Trouble, oasis. That's what David's brought to. He's brought from trouble to an oasis by God, the providence of God caring for his people. Let's Look at the second question that we asked earlier this morning in our reading of the Heidelberg. How does knowing that God works through providence help us? How does that help us? Answer, we, consider David here, consider your own life, we can be patient when things go against us. Saul's right on your heels. God, what are you doing we can be patient when things go against us, thankful with things that go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. Friends, we can be patient. We can trust. Some of you going through extreme difficulty and hardship. But when you've trusted in God and you're His child, you can be patient and you can trust. Think of Jesus about to be crucified and ascend to heaven. And it's that last night and He says that He's going to leave. Uh, I'm going to depart. I'm going to go away. And His followers are troubled. They're concerned. And they ask how they'll know the way. They're looking for the way to safety. They're looking to the, their way to Zion, to heaven, their oasis. They're in trouble. People are going to be after them because they're followers of Jesus. So how do we know how to find you, how to get to you? How do we know to get to the place where we're comforted finally? Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to be right with the Father. You're concerned about where you're going to go. You come to me. I'm your way. I'm the way. If you're not a Christian today and you are troubled, this world is not an easy place to live in. It's difficult. It's hard. You've had hardship. 
see in David's life, his commitment to the Lord, his, his, his care by the Lord is giving him security. God guides David through his word. God guides David through counsel and friends. God guides David through his providence. He will work things out for David's good and his own glory. You can trust in Jesus Christ who leads you to God the Father, leads you home to heaven. So if you're troubled and concerned and my own sin has got me into difficulty, where do I go for trust? Where do I go to find ultimate safety? Jesus Christ. When you come to Christ, God adopts you as his own. God cares for you, can I say it this way? As he cares for David. God cares for his people. This is the testimony of Scripture. Trust in Jesus. I find it interesting that so many psalms are written during this time. David on the run, needing to be strengthened, needing to be reminded by his friend, don't be afraid. And what's David doing? He's writing hymns. David's worshiping his way through difficulty. I heard a quote earlier. Sorrow is for a season, singing is forever. Sorrow is for a season, singing is forever. Saul is no longer after David. Saul was defeated. David's alive with God, and we are still singing his psalms. It's a good reminder about what the end of the Scriptures tell us, that sorrow will go away and singing will last forever. Think of a, another line from a song from the band Wren Collective in their, song, in their song, I Choose to Worship. It's a song about going through difficulties and trials and choosing to worship the Lord. You see that a lot in David. Listen to this line. In the valley, you are worthy. You are good when life is not. You will always and forever be my song. Let's pray together. Father, valleys and wildernesses characterize some of us even this morning. And together as a congregation, we link arms around those people struggling today and ask that in their valley, you would be the object of their worship and their trust, that they would be able to be patient with the strength that you supply, send them friends that will speak the Word of God to them. Father, for some of us, Make us more of a friend who will speak and help people strengthen one another's hand through the difficulties of life. Ultimately, Father, as a congregation, we praise you for the fact that you guide us. You, gu you will guide us home. You guide us through your word. You guide us through the ministry of one another. And you guide us through your perfect providence where you line all things up to bring us home. We pray for greater trust and worship to be given to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.